Amen. Again, good to see each one this morning on this Resurrection Sunday. You have your Bibles this morning. Turn to the book of Mark, chapter 16, but also the book of John, chapter 20. We're going to look at a, a number of scriptures here this morning as we talk about the resurrection of our Lord and our Savior. The end was the beginning. You know, what Satan thought was the end of Jesus Christ was really only the beginning. And what does that resurrection of Jesus do for you and I? It brings new life to those who would trust him as their Lord and their Savior. You know, from the beginning of time, Satan has set out to thwart the, the plan of God concerning Messiah. As you remember, first he attempted to destroy the human race, you know, and thwart God's plan when he uh, brought about the temptation in the garden and the sin in the garden with Adam and Eve. Surely, if he could get mankind to sin, it would upset God so much that mankind, or that God would just destroy mankind, get rid of mankind altogether. Next, that didn't work. So next, what he done is he, he began to try to cut off the, the promised lineage of Messiah. When Abel, you know, was killed by his brother Cain, we know that story, you know, that he was killed by his brother Cain. But then uh, Adam and Eve, they had another son by the name of Seth. And Seth was the promised lineage of which Messiah would come. So even though Satan got Cain to slew Abel, it still didn't work because here comes Seth along who carried on that lineage. After another failed attempt, he saw, uh, sought to destroy God's chosen people, Israel. 4,000 years uh, you know, ago, God gave a man named Abram a number of promises concerning the nation that he would fa uh, father. And, and his people, you know, has, ever since, has been sought to be destroyed by Satan. He's done all he can to destroy the nation of Israel. Even today, he is seeking to destroy the nation of Israel. Throughout history, the serpent has continued his attempt with no success to destroy this promised lineage of Messiah. After that too failed, he sought to interfere with the mission of Jesus Christ when he did show up on earth. We find that Satan was behind the slaughtering of, of thousands of babies under two years old. You know, when uh, 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 Pharaoh you know, knew that Jesus Christ was, had been born as a result of the wise man who come. And what did he do? Satan had uh, 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 Pharaoh destroy every child under two years old there in Bethlehem. What was he doing? He was trying to kill the baby Jesus. Because if he could just find the right baby, kill the baby, then God's plan would be avoided. Also, Satan has tried to destroy the work of God today by attacking the church. You remember in the book of Acts, as well as throughout 2,000 years of church history, Satan has sought to destroy the church. But can I tell you something? Jesus said, upon this rock will I build my church, and not even the gates of hell is going to be able to uh, you know, tear up or destroy the church of Jesus Christ. But Jesus said, I'm going to build my church. Nothing will be able to stop it. So just like in the other attempts, Satan has failed to destroy the plan of God. Now, with these five attempts by Satan failing to stop God's plan, there's also a sixth plan 
that Satan tried that failed. That sixth plan was between, actually between the fourth and the fifth plan, and that plan was the crucifixion of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. If I could just get him killed, if I could get him nailed to a cross, if he would die, then this would do away with God's plan for redemption of mankind. You know, it's believed that the Persians, you know, uh, was the first to use crucifixions, but what we do know is the Romans developed it into a very cruel, torturous, slow death intent on inflicting the most pain on a human being that could be suffered, uh, that possibly could be suffered. You know, the term we use, excruciating, you know, that's a term we use today, the excruciating pain. It simply means, you know, a lot of pain, agony, torment. It comes from a Latin word that simply means from or out of the cross. We get that word excruciating pain as a result of the pain that Jesus went through on the cross. It's excruciating pain. You know, Roman crucifixion was was painful. It was public. It was shameful. It was notorious death that was made for slaves and insurrectionists and deserting soldiers and also the most vilest of criminals. And you know, Jesus was none of those. But yet he still experienced this cruel death on the cross. And though it was evil that nailed Jesus to the cross, folks, Jesus humbled himself in obedience to God, and he died that criminal's death upon the cross. That's why Paul said in Philippians 2.8, he said this, And being found in the fashion of man, he, Jesus Christ, humbled himself, became obedient to death, even the death on the cross. Now, when Paul says even the death on the cross, what he's saying is it wasn't just death. It was this excruciating death that Jesus Christ went through because he loved you, because he loved me, because he so loved the entire world. He willingly gave himself up on that cross, even the cross, not just regular death, but even the death of a cross. Jesus went through because of his love for you. Because of his love for us, he endured the beatings that he went through. Let me tell you, we don't really understand. We can't comprehend the beatings that Jesus went through. But Isaiah said in Isaiah chapter 52, when they got through beating Jesus, when they got through hitting in him and, and spitting upon him, when they got through with that cat of nine tails ripping flesh off his back, Isaiah said that he was so disfigured He barely looked human. Now stop and think about that. Isaiah said he was so disfigured. He was so broken. He was so torn. Flesh was off his back to the point that when you saw him hanging on the cross, you just thought it was a piece of meat hanging up there. Why did Jesus go through that excruciating pain, folks? Let me tell you something. Because he loved you. Because he loved you. Because he loved the entire world. Do we grasp what Jesus Christ really went through because of his love for us? I believe if we did, we'd live our life different than what we do. I believe we'd be more committed to him. I believe we'd be more obedient to him rather than fitting in with the world. I believe we'd put our focus on him and we would live our life in a way that's pleasing to him. Again, as I look at the church of Jesus Christ I'm going to use that very lightly. In this, uh, in this world today, and especially in this nation today, I do not see people who really understand what he went through for us because they're living their life just like the world. You can't tell the difference and quote a Christian and a lost person in this world. God help us. 
But when we get an idea, when we get a focus, when we get an understanding of what Jesus went through for us, the sacrifice He made, let me tell you something, there's no sacrifice that we can do for Him today that will even come close to the sacrifice He did for us. Now, Jesus was then stripped. He was stripped. He was thrown down to the ground on His back. Now, let's don't forget... His back was so tore open, folks. You, I mean, the skin was gone. You could see the ribs in the back. It was just, again, what did Isaiah say? He was so disfigured, he barely looked human. Now, they took him. They threw him on his back. They stretched his arms out on that crossbar, and they nailed his hands to that crossbar. Did he fight them? No. He willingly laid down his life. The nails were likely, you know, when you go and study history there, they were tapered iron spikes about, all oh, five to seven inches long. They, they, they wasn't round where it would go in very smoothly. They were square-shanked nails, some three-eighths of an inch thick. Folks, they were driven through his wrist. Have you ever just pushed right there on your wrist? I tell you what, do that right now. Just hold up your wrist and push. Pretty tender there, isn't it? I mean, you can feel... You know, if you push it just right, you can feel kind of a shot go down your arm. Folks, because of his love for you, because of his love for me, they took those seven-inch spikes, three-eighths of an inch square, and they drove it right there. You say, well, I thought they drove it in his hands. Back then, the wrist was considered the hand. You see, with it going right there, the tendons and all that's there, it wouldn't rip off like it could do with the hand. And folks, he laid there and he allowed him to drive those spikes through his hand because of his love for you, because of his love for me. Once nailed to that crossbar, they would then lift Jesus up on that upright post and his legs, they would take and they would fold one leg, a foot over the other and they would kind of bend his knee and they would drive a spike right through his feet. Right through his feet. Oh, the searing pain he must have went through, the searing pain that must have shot up his twisted legs. Here he hung, bloody and torn and, and ridiculed, and his only crime was truthfully proclaiming himself as the Son of God. His only crime was truthfully proclaiming himself King of the Jews. And he's willing to go through that pain and suffering for you and I. Look, Death would come, come slowly as each wound produced intense agony. Each one. The weight of his old sagging body on those nails, you know, it sent pain shooting through his arms. You know, the extended position of the weight of Jesus' arms, it made his chest muscles, you know, very weak. In order to get a breath, he had to push up on them feet that was nailed. Why? Because the way he was drooping, his lungs could not get no air. So he had to push up on those feet with the spikes drove through. Don't you understand the pain he went through just to draw another breath? Just to draw another breath as he hung there. Jesus' bloody raw back. Remember, his back's all tore up at this point. Against that old roof upright of the cross don't you know each time he pushed up on that it just rubbed that old back on that rough sawn cross each time he pushed up to grab another breath 
the pain he must have went through. You know, after three to six hours on that cross, Jesus' lungs began, be, began filling with fluid a, a, and his breathing became so labored he was having to gasp for every breath. Gasp for every breath that he took. In deep agony, as the sky began to turn dark, he slowly began crying out to the Father. And his words to God was, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, with Jesus saying those words, don't you know he was feeling lonely at that time? Thinking the Father had, 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 had forsaken him? Why would he say such a thing, folks? Because at that moment, the Father had to turn his back on his Son because at that moment, his Son had your sins on his back. Because his son had my sins on his back. And because God can't look at sin, God had to turn his back on his son. And his son was all alone at that point, And he cried out, God, why have you forsaken me? Wow. The pain, the suffering, the blood loss. The, it produced shock and dehydration, calling chill shivers to rack through his body. And a raging thirst come upon him. You know, he did cry out once, I thirst. And the soldier sent him up a sponge full of vinegar that he wouldn't take. Now, it's true that that vinegar that they used then mixed with some wine was a painkiller, but Jesus didn't want to kill that pain. Jesus wanted to feel that pain, folks, because of his love for us. Because of his love for us. In one last grasp, Jesus cried out, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Father, it's done. It's finished. Now I commit my spirit to you. And at that point, folks, he hung his head and he gave up the ghost. Wow. Was this the end? Was this the end? Is this the way it would end after 33 and a half years on this earth, claiming to be Messiah for around three and a half years, the last three and a half years. Look, I firmly believe, this is just what I believe. I could be wrong. It, you know, it, I hadn't been wrong since 1973, but, you know, you say, what happened in 1973? I quit school and went into Vietnam, so I think I was wrong on that one. But anyway, I think as Jesus hung his head, I think as Jesus said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. I think as Jesus drew that final breath, Satan and all of hell rejoiced. I, I, I think they threw a big party. I think they threw a big party. Finally, I have won, Satan proclaimed. Finally, finally, I have defeated God's plan of redemption mankind finally his plan of redemption is no more i have been victorious in thwarting the plan of god for mankind was the end was that the end no folks we're going to find out no See, Christ's burial and resurrection was the next thing. After drawing his final breath and having that spear, you know, 
through, uh, thrust through his side in order to make sure he was dead. He was taken down from the cross. He was carried to a borrowed tomb. He was placed inside that tomb. A large stone was rolled over the front with guards placed there to keep anybody from stealing his body because rumor was, rumor was in three days he would rise again. Well, we know that's just rumor, but we're going to put some guards here just to keep his people from stealing his body and proclaiming he has resurrected and keep this nonsense going on about a resurrected Savior. So they placed the guards there. But you know what? Three days later. You see, that was not the end. Three days later, when they took him down from the cross, they placed him in that tomb. Many people, even those closest to him, they felt this was the final curtain. How sad that even his disciples thought this was the final curtain. This would be the end of the story. We know that to be the fact because of what our scripture text says this morning. Oh, we hadn't even read no scripture this morning, have we? Some of you are going to say, how can you preach without reading Scripture? We'll turn to Mark chapter 16 and we'll read some Scripture. You see, according to our Scripture here, when the, the, the ladies was coming to the tomb that morning, there were some five ladies coming to that tomb that morning. Where was his disciples? They were hiding out. The ladies came, but the ladies came to anoint a dead body. You see, they didn't even believe that Jesus would resurrect. Let's, let's, let's look at this. Mark chapter 16, verse 1. And when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Jesus and Salome, and, and, and uh, they brought sweet spices that they may anoint him. And very early in the morning, the first day of the week, they came into the sepulcher and at the rising of the sun, and they said among themselves, here's how we know they wasn't expecting Jesus to be resurrected. They said to themselves, who will roll away the stone? Who will roll this stone away from us from this door of this grave? Now, does that sound like they was expecting a risen Savior? No. And what was they bringing with them? They was bringing spices to anoint this dead body. Verse 4. And when they looked and they saw the stone rolled away, for it was very great, and entering into the sepulcher, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, clothed in a white garment, and they were affrightened. And they said to him, he said to them, don't be afraid. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, which was crucified. Look at these words. He is risen he is risen he is not here boy what do you think they're thinking about this time behold the place where they laid him this angel said look he, he's not here you know if you don't believe that there's where they laid him right there look where they've laid him behold the place now verse 7 but go your way Tell his disciples and Peter that he goeth before you in Galilee. There shall you see him as he said unto you. And they went out quickly and fled from the sepulchre. For they trembled and were amazed. Neither said they anything to any man, for they were afraid. Wow. 
You know, it's easy to see here in Mark's account of the resurrection. The last thing these women were expecting to find was an empty tomb. The last thing. They were, they, 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 that's why they were shocked. That's why they were afraid when they saw that tomb empty. The last thing they were expecting to see was that giant stone rolled away. Now, they, they estimate this stone could have been anywhere from 2,000 to 4,000 pounds. A big stone. Okay? And they were saying among themselves, you know, there in verse 3, how are we going to move this stone? What are we going to do to get this stone out of the way? The five of us women, we probably aren't going to be able to move this 2,000, 4,000 pound stone. You know, it's possible two men could have done it. The two guards there, but you think they was going to do it? No. So they was talking among themselves. How are we going to move the stone in order that we can go in and anoint the dead body of Jesus Christ? Listen, even though Jesus had told them multiple times that in three days he would rise again, even though Jesus even gave them the example of Jonah in the belly of the great fish for three days and then how he come out, Jesus said, that's what's going to happen to me. They're going to stick me in the belly of the ground. But in three days, in three days, just like Jonah, I will come out. Now, let's look over at John chapter 20. Flip there. Because we go into a little bit more of a depth, you know, to the re uh, reaction of Mary when she first saw the resurrected Lord. Here at the tomb of the resurrected Lord, Mary addressed, uh, addresses a few tough questions that at some time in life we may all have to address. In fact, maybe you have to address some this morning of the questions that we're going to look at. First of all, John chapter 20, verse 11, but Mary stood without the sepulcher weeping. Why are you crying? Was the question to her. Why are you crying? As Mary looked inside this dark tomb, she saw a couple of angels and the angel asked, why are you crying, Mary? <laughs> what is going on with you? You know, Mary's answer was simple. They, they've taken my Lord away, and I have no idea where they laid him. You know, I believe the angels at this point were a little perplexed at the tears that Mary was shedding because they were not tears of joy. Now, had she have come there with the other ladies looking for a resurrected Lord, boy, don't you think if they really thought he would have been uh, alive at that point and that they believed what he had taught them, don't you think they would have come skipping and rejoicing and uh, rejoicing on the way to that tomb and when she saw it empty, the tears she cried would have been tears of joy because Jesus is alive? No, no. The angel was perplexed. Now, wait a minute. You heard him tell you multiple times he's going to rise again. What's the tears for? Those aren't tears of joy. Those are tears of sadness. Why are you crying? Why are you crying? Maybe the angels had to ask that question out of curiosity. Maybe they probably, maybe they thought this woman who walked with Jesus should have knew he was alive. After all, he told them time and time and time again that in three days he would arise. But then Mary turned around and she saw who she assumed was the gardener now the gardener was the one who took care of the tombs in the area around the tomb look at verse 14 and when she had thus said she turned herself back and saw jesus standing now why didn't she start rejoicing at that part 
because she didn't know it was Jesus. Okay? He was now in his resurrected body. And let's read on. And knew not that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, look at what he asked her. Why, why weepest thou? Yeah, wait a minute, Mary. Why are you crying? She still didn't know who he was. You know, this stranger asked the same question. Don't miss this. As did the angel. Why are you crying? Let me ask you a question. How many times do we allow ourselves to shed tears over things that happen in life that we don't understand? And all along, Jesus is standing right there in front of us. I would be willing to say there's some in here this morning who get upset, who cry, who get hurt because of situations in your life. And all along, the answer to your problem is right in front of you. The answer to your situation is right in front of you. But yet you fail to see the risen Lord, who is the answer to your problem. You know, many times, many times, we fail to see Jesus. John, throw this up there. Many times we fail to see Jesus, who is right before us. Why? Because we're too focused on what we view. Don't miss this. What we view as a negative situation in our life. Now, I want to point that out because what we view, okay, how we view situations in our life determines where our focus is going to be. Now, I, I, I know Brother Danny gets upset with me sometimes, and he's got to where he won't even ask me no more, how's your day go? Because I always tell him, fantastic, you know. You mean I don't have no problems in my life? I didn't say that. We've all got problems in our life. We've all got situations in our life. But you know what? We can determine how we handle those situations. We can determine how we handle those problems. We can determine how we react to those problems. Mary, in our story this morning, chose not to react by looking to Jesus for the solution. Look. Bad things are going to happen to all of us. What we view as negative things are going to happen to all of us. But if you'll look, the answer to that is right in front of you, just like it was right in front of Mary in this situation. We've got to look to Jesus. We've got to look for Jesus. We can't, we can't control the things that happen to us in life. Well, I mean, we can't control everything that happens to us. But again, we can control how we react to it. Does that make sense? So let, let, let's finish reading this. You know, rather than focusing on uh, or the, what you view as a negative situation, try looking for Jesus in those times of sorrow, and you're going to see he's right there. And what happens is you take your focus off of what you view as a negative situation. It may not even be a negative situation. You're just viewing it that way. But you take your focus off of what you're viewing as a negative situation and you're putting it on the risen Lord. And he'll take you through it. He'll take you through it. Now, Jesus asked this question, I believe, out of compassion. You know, Jesus loved Mary and his heart was moved by her tears. Mary, why are you crying? I, 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 think, it, I think it hit him right there. Why are you crying? He knew the answer, but he wanted her to say it. 
He knew why she was crying. He knew she wasn't expecting him to be alive. But, folks, he wanted her to say it. He wanted her to admit it to herself. And she answered honestly, they have taken away my Lord. I don't know where he is. You know, <laughs> she could have done what a lot of people do. When you ask, what's wrong? I can't tell you how many times I've asked somebody, because I can sense something's not right, and I say, well, what, what, what's wrong? Well, oh, really nothing. Have you ever told somebody that they're concerned for you and they're, they're, you're, they're, they're, they're wanting to help you and, and you say, oh, really nothing, <laughs> really nothing, when all along inside you are tore up? Mary could have just said, oh, nothing, Mr. Gardner, you know. But she said, no, they've taken my Lord. She was honest with God. She was honest with God. There may be some here today who are hurting emotionally, who are hurting spiritually, and although on the outside you're putting on a pretty good show for those around you. Listen to me now. You're here this morning, but inside you're all broken up over something. Inside you're just being tore apart about something. But you know, well, I'm going to church, so i got to put on a good show here so nobody will know I'm broken, so nobody will know I'm hurting. Can I tell you something? The one standing right in front of you knows you're hurting. And all he's waiting for is for you to call upon him, and he'll be there for you. The question Jesus is asking you today is, why are you crying? Why are you so broken inside that you can't even function properly? Why are you crying? I'm here, and that's all you need. I'm right here in front of you. I'm right here in front of you. Turn to me. Come to me. I'm here for you. Look, you need to be honest with him just like Mary was. Don't just sob and say, oh, really nothing. I'm okay, Lord. Look, he already knows you're broken. He already knows you're hurting. He just wants you to admit to the point of your pain. He just wants you to be honest with him. And more importantly, he's wanting you to be honest with yourself. He's wanting you to be honest with yourself. He wants you to face your feelings. And when you face your feelings, he wants you to trust him so he can bring peace to your life. Now, in 15V, B, another question here. Who are you seeking? Okay? Whom seeketh thou? And she, supposing him to be the gardener, said unto him, Sir, if thou have borne him hence, tell me where thou hast laid him, and I will take him away. In verse 16, Jesus said to her, now look at this, Mary. Now, don't miss this. Jesus didn't say, look, I'm the one you're looking for here, Okay? Jesus simply just said, Mary. In other words, he spoke her name. And what happened when Jesus spoke her name? Look at the next. She turned herself and said to him, Rabboni, which is to say, Master. You, you, you know, she, don't miss this. She had been talking to him. She had been in a dialogue with him. But until she heard him speak her name, she didn't even realize it was Jesus. Folks, that's a personal relationship. There, there, there's just something about 
when someone speaks your name, it, it means a lot to you. But when she heard him speak her name, she said, that's the Lord. That's the Lord. And when Jesus said that, when Jesus said, who are you seeking? That showed a deep love he had for her. When Jesus spoke her name, she fell at his feet, knowing she had found the one that she had sought. She was looking for Jesus, and now she had found him. Now, don't miss this. If we are to find Jesus, we must first be seeking Jesus. Okay? Look here. Had she had come to that tomb, seen it was empty, went back, and never sought Jesus, would she have found him? Not right now she wouldn't have. Maybe later. But look here. If you are to find Jesus Christ this morning, you have to look for him. You have to seek him. You say, well, where do I look for him? Right in front of you. <laughs> right in front of you. He's there. He's there. Many people are searching for truth. They're searching for purpose. They're searching for healing. They're searching for comfort. And the sad thing is, you know, many seek to answer to those things in everything but Jesus. There's some of you here this morning who are seeking, you know, relief from, you know, per, or you're looking for purpose in your life. You're, you're seeking a healing. You're seeking comfort. You're seeking truth. And you're looking for it everywhere but Jesus. Listen to me. There are people who look for the answer to their problems in drugs, and they're not going to find it. They're just going to create more problems. There are those who look for the answer to their problems in alcohol, and you're not going to find it there. All you're going to do is create more problems within your life. There are people who look for the answer to their problems in a relationship. And let me tell you something. You will not find it in any relationship. You're just going to create more problems. More problems. We must seek Jesus if we're to find the answer to life's sorrows. And the thing is, most of the time, most of the time, he's right there in front of you. You know, Solomon, the wisest man to ever live, he said, there is a way that seemeth right to man, but the end thereof, the end thereof is death. So if you're seeking any other way this world has to offer as the solution to your problem, Solomon said, it's no good. It's only going to create more problems. You know, Mary knew who the one thing she was seeking was she knew that to be jesus she battled you know mary is the one that battled seven demonic possessions and uh, jesus healed her jesus changed her life so she knew if he can get rid of these seven demonic beings within me he can answer any problem that i have in life any problem that i have she knew, seeking Jesus, this sorrow in her life within, she, she found who she was looking for right there in front of her. The question is, have you truly sought him this morning? Have you truly sought Jesus Christ this morning? Is the risen Lord saying to you this morning, why are you weeping through the things you're going through in life? Is the Lord saying to you this morning, I'm right here in front of you, right here in front of you. Now, the question is, will you do as Mary and fall before the Lord? Okay, look at verse 17. 
And Jesus said to her, now she fell at his feet. She called him Rabboni. She called him Lord. She called him Master. She began to worship him, in other words. And Jesus said to her, don't touch me or touch me not. In other words, she just wanted to wrap herself around the legs of Jesus Christ and hold on to him. She didn't want to lose him again. Now, don't miss this. He said, touch me not, for I am not yet ascended to my Father, but go to the brethren. Go to my disciples. Go to the brethren and say to them, I ascend unto my Father and to your Father and to my God and your God. Jesus couldn't conceal his identity no more. When he saw the love that Mary possessed for him, he simply called her name, and when Mary heard her name, she realized it was Jesus, and she realized at that point all her despair, all her sorrow, all her, you know, now it was nothing but delight because she was in the presence of the one she saw. She could only utter one word, Rabboni, which again literally means master. She was declaring Jesus Christ to be her Lord and her master. Now, again, Mary then fell at the feet of Jesus and she began to worship him. Now, when we recognize Jesus for who he is, our response will also be to worship him. Do we truly worship him? When was the last time you fell before him in worship? When was the last time you truly worshiped him? Being in the presence of Jesus, folks, is always going to lead to our worship of him. But notice one thing here. Don't miss this. I want to point this out. Jesus said, touch me not. In other words, what he was saying to her is, don't hold on to me. Another way of saying that is, don't cling to me. Now, don't miss this. He said, I have something for you to do. It's good that you're worshiping me. I accept your worship. But don't hold on to me. Don't cling to me. Mary, I've got something for you to do. Go tell my disciples that I'm alive. You know, even today, some people just want to cling to Jesus. Oh, they come to church and they worship the Lord. And, 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 and you know, they, they go home and they worship the Lord. And all they do is worship, worship, worship. I have no problem with worship. I just told you we should do it. But Jesus said to her, now don't just cling to me in worship. He said, there's some things to do. Listen, after we worship the Lord, you have a responsibility to serve the Lord. He was saying, don't just cling to me. He said, I have something for you to do. Worship is good. But folks, after worship, listen to me. We must get about the Father's business. And that's what he was telling Mary. You've worshipped me. That's fine. I accept your worship. Now I've got something for you to do. What's he got for you to do? What does God have for you to do? Don't just cling to him in worship. Don't just come to church and go home and say, well, I really worship the Lord today. Next Sunday, I hope I worship the Lord again. No, 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 no. Between this Sunday and next Sunday, you know what? He has something for you to do. Don't just cling to him. Don't just hold to him in worship. I could stay there forever. Let's look at the final thing here. Jesus appears to his disciples. Mary and the other women did as Jesus commanded that evening. They showed up among the disciples, and just as he said he would do, but, 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 but Thomas was missing, and when Thomas returned, they told him the good news. Thomas, he's alive. He's alive. 
But Thomas, like many people today, was a skeptic. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, right. Don't come up to me with that nonsense. I seen him when they took him down off the cross. I seen he didn't even look like a human being. I seen him all ripped apart. I seen him when they wrapped him in that linen. And I seen when they threw him in that cave. I seen when they rolled it. Don't come up to me with that nonsense. He said, you know what? The only way I'm going to believe he's alive, if I can put the, my finger in those holes right there, then I might believe it. The only way I'm going to believe he's alive is if I can thrust my fist in his side where they stuck that spear. I saw him stick that spear. I seen the big gash that was there. Let me stick my fist in there. Then I might believe he's alive. Boy, he was a skeptic, wasn't he? He was a skeptic. And you know what? <laughs> the old term, doubting Thomas, has stuck with him for over 2,000 years. Stuck with him for that. Look, doubting Thomas had to eat his words. I hope he had a salt shaker with him. I found out when I have to eat my words, a little bit of salt helps it go down a little better. And I eat my words quite a bit. Y'all know that. Don't need no amens on that. But he had to eat his words. Why did he have to eat his words? Because Jesus appeared. Jesus appeared while they were meeting. Hey, Tom. Come here, Tom. L looky here. You know, go ahead and stick your finger there. You know what? There's no record that Tom done it. The record is, my Lord, my God, was his only words. He recognized Jesus for who he was. Let me, let, let me just close with this. The death of Jesus on the cross was not the end. It was just the beginning. It was the beginning of new life. For all who would accept, listen, his death, his burial, and most of all, his resurrection. Have you fallen on your knees before Jesus Christ? Have you fallen on your knees before Jesus Christ and asked him to be your Lord and your Savior? Have you recognized Jesus as the one who died for your sins? Have you recognized Jesus for the one who can bring you new life? That's the question we must all ask. Thomas, again, doubted the resurrection. But when he seen Jesus Christ, all he could do was fall to his knees and cry out, My Lord, my God. You know, Jesus taught us that every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that he is Lord. Now, look here. We either do that in this life, that we fall and confess him as our Lord and Savior. Every knee's going to do it, he said, at one day, one day. But the question is, are we going to do it in this life as we make him Lord of our life through salvation in, his, in him? Or are we going to do it at the great white throne judgment when we're standing before him and the book of life is open? And your name's not there. You know what? You're going to fall to your knees at that point. Why? Because Jesus has done promised every knee is going to bow. And every tongue is going to confess. That I am Lord. But you know what? When you fall to your knees at the great white throne judgment. And you finally confess with your mouth. You are Lord. 
you know what? It is going to be too late. Because at that moment is when the angel will take and cast you into that lake of fire. And there you will live throughout eternity. The death of Jesus Christ on the cross was not the end. It was just the beginning. The beginning for new life for those who would accept him as personal Savior. Have you? Have you? accepted Jesus as your Lord and your Savior? Look, all that he went through, he went through because he loves you. And all he asked of you is to accept his sacrifice on the cross. Accept that death. Accept that resurrection of new life. Make him your Lord. Make him Savior of your life. You say, well, how do I do that, Pastor? First of all, you've got to come to the realization that you're a sinner. And that as a sinner, you're in need of a Savior. And then just ask him, Lord Jesus, forgive me a sinner. I want to make you Lord of my life. Come into my life. Let me begin to serve you. And that's confessing him as Lord. Amen. That's confessing him as Lord. Have you done that? If not, today's the day you need to do it. Because not a one of us, listen to me, not a one of us has promised to make it out that door. Not a one of us. Are you one who will have to see to believe? Or are you willing this morning to make that confession, my Lord, my God, and ask Jesus to be your Lord and Savior? So if you're here this morning, in a, just a moment, we're going to have a song of invitation. And I'm going to ask that you just come. You know, you just come. Well, we'll get you with an altar counselor. They can take you in this room right here and just share more about what it means to accept Christ as your personal Savior. But look here, child of God, if you, if you one that you know you're saved, but you know you're not going about the Father's business like Jesus instructed Mary, I got something for you to do. He's got something for you to do, but are you doing it? Are you involved in ministry? Are you involved in, in carrying out what he would have you to do? If not, why don't you be down at this altar this morning making a fresh commitment to him and saying, Lord, I'm ready to serve you. Because of the sacrifice you made for me, I'm willing to sacrifice my life for you. Let's pray. I'll give you for me, you.